0: We're in Romans chapter 8, and you can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to. Somebody said, and actually a few people have said, Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I don't know how you get to that. It's a really good chapter. I'm excited about being in this chapter. For me, usually the greatest chapter in the Bible is actually the one I'm in right at the moment and I'm studying because there's so much good stuff in every chapter of the Bible. Here's how I would capture Romans chapter 8, it's, it's the mountaintop. It's, we've been working for a while now, seven chapters. Then we've got to this place where where you can see and, and view all the amazing truths that have already been spoken about and even what will be spoken about. Now, I'm not much of a mountain climber, but I did in my younger days um, get to the top of Mount Hood a couple of times, and some of you have done that. I'm sure it's an amazing mountain to climb. It's it's not real technical, but it is a bunch of work. What's really interesting about it is you start climbing in the dark about 2 in the morning, and when you get up to the top, the sun is usually just rising. And here was the most spectacular, spectacular part about the whole thing, is when you get there and you stand on it, you see the shadow of what you're standing on. Here's another image. You see the shadow of Mount Hood, and you recognize you're on top of that, And you're looking out, seeing the shadow of what you're on. I stayed there quite a while and just looked at that. And that's how I think of Romans chapter 8. We've been climbing up Romans now for a while. And now we're on the top. We're kind of halfway through. And we're going to see what we can see now. And it's beautiful what we can see. So we're going to actually spend nine nine weeks on the top. Nine weeks in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to see some amazing things up here. Today we're in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Just four verses. And there's some amazing things to see in this text. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And while you have it in front of you in your Bibles, it might be a little different translation. I'm going to invite you to read it out loud with me. It's only four verses. We'll do it all together. Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4 says this Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Four verses. We're going to draw four points from that, some some beautiful, amazing sights of truth that we see from here. Father, we submit ourselves to you To the authority of your word, yet again, we believe that this is the truth. It is you communicating yourself and your plans and your purposes to us. And we recognize that apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't understand it, we can't apply it. So please be the teacher today for the glory of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So the first thing we see from the mountaintop is an amazing fact. It's just a fact that's stated. The Apostle Paul states this fact as succinctly as he can there in verse 1. Therefore there there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, this is a fact. And he bases the fact looking backwards saying, therefore building on what he's just said now we could say that goes back to romans chapter seven and that struggle he refers to there and that even self-condemnation that kind of comes out in that chapter he cries for help who's going to help me in this sense of condemnation that i'm feeling the therefore could actually go all the way back to chapter one When we read about the wrath of God being revealed against unrighteousness. The therefore could be seen going back to chapter 2. Where even the religious Jews are told you are without excuse before God. It could go back to chapter 3. Where it clearly says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See one of the main points going up this mountain that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has labored to communicate is this. Is that condemnation by God, from God, is something that is rightfully ours as individuals and rightfully ours as part of this human family. Later in chapter 5, he stated it very very clearly chapter 5 verse 15 says so then as through one transgression transgression there resulted con- condemnation to who say it all men do you see the word condemnation now some struggle some struggle to just accept the reality of that it's like the Apostle Paul, well, he's being too harsh. And yet Jesus himself communicates the same thing very clearly. We all know John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We always stop reading there, but Jesus keeps talking And says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn. And the reason he says that is because Everybody stands condemned already. He didn't come to condemn. He came to bring freedom from condemnation. The word condemnation there, some translate as judgment. It's kind of a technical legal term, but it more refers to the result of a judgment. Not just the sentencing of judgment, we might use the word penalty or punishment. So then this fact that the mountaintop helps us see is an amazing truth. After weeks and weeks of us understanding the justful, the just condemnation that rests on us, to be at a point where we have no condemnation, that's a big deal, amen? Good place for an amen right there. Notice the word now. It's a little word, but it's very important. That adds a sense of confidence or certainty or even assurance. Being free from condemnation is not something we're working towards. It's not something we're praying for. It's not something we're hoping for. Being free from condemnation is when? Now at this moment. Being free from condemnation is certainly something we will enjoy for all eternity. But it is certain now, it is assured now, and we rejoice in it now. Now, how can we be so sure? Well, the Apostle Paul kind of settles the fact in our position, notice the Apostle Paul reminds us that in, instead of being in a place of condemnation, we are in Christ Jesus. The fact that we are free, you and I are free from condemnation is not because of who we are or what we've done, but certainly based on who Jesus is and the fact that this text and many others we will see in a moment that we are in him positioned in him not just believing in him not just knowing about him but when we put our faith in jesus we are positioned in the very person of jesus and the work of jesus now that's an important truth and it's in many passages that we kind of just read over quickly let me just show you a few 1 Corinthians 1:30 says, But by his doing you are what? Say it, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctifi- sanctification, redemption. We are in him, so that redemption, we're in that, the sanctification, we're in that, that righteousness that is Jesus, we are in him. 2 Corinthians 5:17, if any. One is, in Christ, he's a new creature. Galatians says it, for all of you who were baptized into Christ. See, there's a positional aspect, not just a propositional thing about being a Christian. It's not just believing the right propositions or principles, but in believing in Jesus, we're positioned in him, and that's secure, amen? makes me think of the old testament and there was that story of the ark and there was that time where god poured his condemnation out on a sinful planet who was saved when god brought his judgment think about it who was saved it's not those who heard that it was going to rain it wasn't even those that well it might rain Who was saved? It was those who were in the ark. And that ark in the Old Testament shows us this Jesus who we are in. And so we're saved from the condemnation. So from this mountaintop we see this fact. And it is a fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. What else do we see we see the freedom then that comes from that verse 2 for the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death new testament speaks often about freedom and bondage jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will make you what free he goes on to say so if the son makes you free you are free indeed so Freedom is something that comes with this position we have in Christ. Now we look back one chapter, the Apostle Paul asks a great question about freedom. At the end of that chapter, is a wretched man that I am, who will will set me free? He recognizes there is a bondage still going on to a certain degree in his life. So after asking that question, he comes to the conclusion that he has this freedom from the law of sin and of death. This again is not a freedom that is aspired to or wished for or worked for. It is something that has been secured. Again, notice the tense. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. It is past tense in our English now this isn't just some generic abstract freedom if you look closely again at the text it's specific freedom from what freedom from the law of sin and the death and the destruction that it brings and that's set up in contrast to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus Now, the word law you see there, it's not referring to a Mosaic law or any kind of a written legal law. That word law should be understood as a kind of a regulatory principle, such as the law of gravity. It kind of is a regulatory principle in our world, isn't it? It controls things. The law of aerodynamics, a controlling principle So what we see on this mountaintop is is that because of our position in Jesus being free from condemnation, now there's a freedom from a controlling principle that once controlled us, this principle of sin that leads to death and destruction and despair, and we all experience that in all kinds of different ways, to now live under another controlling principle of life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, life, even Jesus says, I came to give them abundant life. So we are free people, spiritually free people, something that has been granted to us, not earned by us, no longer in bondage to some principle that brings sin and death. Now often when people hear the word freedom, They think it means freedom to do whatever I want to do. But more accurately, when we speak about the freedom we have in Jesus, it's more the right or the freedom to do what is right and good and pleasing to God. Somebody said it this way. I thought this was a succinct way to say it. Christian freedom is not the right to do as you please. But now the power to please God by doing what is right. Do you see the difference? Freedom now to be controlled by something good. Freedom to be controlled by the spirit of life that is in Jesus. This spirit that leads to freedom and fullness and abundance in every area of our life. I want to remind you that the enemy that is against us can do nothing about the freedom that we have, but only deceive us to think that freedom and abundance is found somewhere else. He can do nothing about our access to the freedom that we have. All he can do is deceive us to move somewhere else to try to find freedom. I was deceived. For many years in my younger days, in thinking that to live the Christian life was to enter into this funnel, and as I went down this funnel, life got narrower and narrower and narrower to the point that it was stifling. I believed that for many years. Some of you have believed that. Maybe some of you still believe that. If I'm really going to follow after Jesus and submit to Jesus, life was really good, but now it's going to get really, really narrow and restrictive. But really, it's just the opposite, isn't it? We learned that we enter in through the narrow way, and life gets broader and broader and more beautiful and more abundant, and we become freer to experience all that God desired for us. I hope you're not being deceived to think that somehow you're going to lose out on something by following after Jesus. Young people, maybe you're struggling with that, man, I could do all these things because this seems so restrictive. Please, don't believe the lie. Life is good. Life is big. And it gets bigger and more beautiful the longer you fall. follow after Jesus. So we see the fact We see this freedom. And the next thing in verse 3, I'm going to capture verse 3 as the failure. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, you see that what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God did. Now again, what we see in verse 3 is certainly not the failure of God. I'm going to capture it as the failure of the law. You see, in the text, the law couldn't do something. The law was weak. Now, in here, the word law is referring to, I believe, the moral law of God, or if you want to just condense that to the Ten Commandments. Now, I need to be quick to clarify that the law is not bad or evil. Again, if we go back down the mountaintop just a little bit to Romans 7... The Apostle Paul wanted to dispel the idea that there's something wrong with the law. So he asked the question, is the law sinful? And there's the answer. No, the law is not sinful. The law is what? Say it. Holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So then you should ask me, how can the law be holy and righteous and good and also be weak? How can I say It's a failure. Let me answer the question that you just asked me. We need to remember the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to save people. The purpose of the law is to reveal people's need to be saved. The law perfectly reveals the need for salvation But the law fails to be a channel for salvation. And again, the Apostle Paul has said this in other places, in Galatians, therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we can be justified by faith. Now I'm going to use an illustration that I'll keep coming back to. I have a chainsaw. Anybody have chainsaws? I love my chainsaw. I actually got it for a gift a few years ago. It's a still chainsaw. This last year I found a great source of firewood. I used that chainsaw. It worked perfectly. I could slice up those rounds and it was just a beautiful thing. Actually, I enjoy running a chainsaw. But it failed me because the chainsaw wouldn't split my wood. I mean, you take the chainsaw, you cut the rounds, and then you hit it with the chainsaw, and it doesn't split. It failed me. And it also failed me because it wouldn't stack my wood. Silly, right? You understand? It would be silly for me to use the chainsaw for what it's for and then try to use this chainsaw for what it's not for. But people do that all the time. They try to swing the chainsaw to do a bunch of things with the law, whether it's God's law, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, or their own self-imposed law, or some church law, or whatever. They, they try to use the chainsaw of the law to do something that it was never intended to do. And they fail, and it fails, right? Again, if I can encourage you to look back down the mountaintop a little bit. He already said this in Romans chapter 3, because by the works of the law, no flesh... Will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. I recognize I'm a sinner because there's the law that I can't keep. So, yes, the law is both perfect and holy and good, but it fails to save us. There's another reason the law is holy and righteous and good. But also weak, and and the text actually says it's because it is weak through our flesh. Do you see it there? For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Because the law is perfect, but in our flesh, in our humanity, we could never do it. I love the fact that we have lots of new babies. I don't know if you heard, but Sarah and Dylan had their fourth baby. He's a beautiful young man. And it's wonderful to have all these new babies. Each of those babies begins much different, different weight and length and hair and eyes. Some are really cute at birth, some not so much. You guys know that's true. They're not too pretty sometimes. So they're all different, but they all have one thing in common they are all bro- born human, broken. Selfish, separated from God. And it doesn't take too long for that to show up, does it? In their cuteness, they're selfish and they want their way. So then the law is weak to save because that's not his tent. The law is weak to save because we all have this sinful flesh, this humanity problem. So so even if the law was meant to save us, we still couldn't do it. Can I take you back to my wood for just a moment? What if it was God's plan, he gives us the law and said, keep the law, it'll save you. Now, what would that be like? That would be like, um, I ha- imagine I have a hundred rounds of wood to split. And salvation for me would be to split all of those rounds of wood. And God says, here's the perfect tool. This splitting mall will split anything. No matter if there's knots, no matter if it's green, no matter what kind of wood, it will split anything. All you have to do is just drop it on the round, and it will split. So I go to grab it, but it weighs 5,000 pounds. You see, I don't know if that's a still a silly illustration. It would work if I could do it. It would work if I could lift it. And again, I think there's still lots of people trying to lift something in their strength that is impossible to lift. So even if the law could save us, we in our flesh could not lift it and would not even desire to lift it. So it's a pretty sad state for all of us, right? Pretty sad state. So I'm so thankful for the next two words in the text. God did something. Isn't that beautiful? God did something. God did it. Those are beautiful words. Those are words full of grace and love and mercy and power and justice. Those two words set the Christian faith apart from any other so-called religious system. All other religious systems say, swing the chainsaw. (laughs) All other religious systems say, try to pick up that splitting mall. And the Christian faith says, God did something that you could never do. What did he do? Well, it's right in the text. It's the gospel. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of it. He kept the law perfectly. And then he offered his life as an offering for our sin. You see it there, for an offering for sin. That's how we're saved, amen? Through what God did. We are transformed by what God did. And it says he condemned sin in the flesh. Takes us right back to the first use of the word condemnation. We began with, There is therefore now no condemnation for us. Why is that? Because that condemnation was in Jesus, in His flesh, in His perfection. Jesus took our condemnation, Jesus took our judgment in His flesh. Now I want to highlight just something maybe I haven't emphasized before. Jesus, at that moment, not only died for our sins, plural, things we have done and are going to yet do, but he also died for our sin, our sinful nature. I don't know who to give credit to this statement to, but somebody else said it smarter than I. Jesus died for what we were, Meaning, in Adam, slavery to sin, we were sinful in nature, just as much as for what we have done, referring to our actions. He died for both, so we're free from both. He did it, amen? God did it. Can I take you back to the firewood for one more time? Last time, I promise. So what did God do? God grew the tree. God cut down the tree. God sliced it up. God split it. God stacked it. And then God carries the wood to the door and he says, I'll come in, I'll start a fire and you can be warm. What's our response? I'll let you, I'll let you do that. I'll receive that I can't do that. I could never do that. I'll quit trying to do it, and I'll let God do what only God can do, which is all of it. So we're up on this mountaintop. We see the fact that brings this freedom That reveals the failure of the law and what only God can do and the last verse is going to be built on in the coming verses we see the fulfillment so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us do you see that fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit so here we see the Christian experience is not just being freed from something It's, it's not just No longer having condemnation on us, but something is fulfilled in us. What is fulfilled in us? Now, New American Standard, as you can see, says the requirement of the law. If you're looking at the NIV or the English Standard Version, there's two words that translate the one word in the original righteous requirements. It's interesting, if you're a King James user, it simply says, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled. So then what is fulfilled in us through what God has done? The perfect standard of righteousness is now fulfilled, another word we could use, is imputed to us, and it's now in us. Now you're saying, and as I would say, well, no, I'm still not perfect. I'm still not fully complete. And I agree, none of us are. And that's the beauty of the gospel. At this moment, because of what God has done, the perfect standard that he needs and that he justly desires and requires is in me now. He sees me perfectly complete. The righteous requirement of the law has now been completed in me. That's a beautiful thing to realize, isn't it? On the outside, we're still in process. On the inside, we're perfect. Again, this is the gospel. It's repeated again at this moment on the mountaintop. And understand, it clearly says the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us as opposed to by us. We didn't do it. Amen? God did it. Amen? You'll have to learn to not have to have that prompt. Just say amen when it's a good spot. Now look at this last phrase and we're going to wrap it up. It says, "The the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the what? Spirit. Now it's the second time in these verses the word spirit is used and it's going to be used now on the mountaintop 21 times. It's like now the Apostle Paul is revealing there's a new power available now. There is something that's in us, the spirit of God, that now moves us in a new direction. The Holy Spirit... Understand, is not optional in the Christian life. It is essential in the Christian life. And I think I mentioned before, maybe in Baptist-type churches, we are a Baptist church. We maybe have people have a sense we minimize the whole Holy Spirit thing. How dare we minimize that? It is essential. Amen. It, you know. So let's say you're going to go buy a truck or a car. And you have all these options. You could get leather. You could get heated seats. You could get nice wheels. Those are all options. Would anybody buy a car that, well, the engine is optional? That's silly, no. No, the engine is essential. And sometimes we think of the Christian life as I'm going to live the Christian life and the Holy Spirit is optional. It's not. I should say he's not. The Holy Spirit is not optional now this idea of walk here in the verse it it it, like many other times in the new testament talks about our lifestyle the way we live what we're going to do this afternoon what we did before we got here what we're going to do next week and throughout the year says there's a way we walk that is now according to the spirit empowered by the spirit Now, that last phrase is not meant to to say that as long as we live right and walk by the Spirit, then the law is fulfilled in us. It's not to be read that way. It's to be read because the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us. This is now the new reality. Now we walk by the Spirit. No longer the humanity, the flesh controlling us, no longer being... um, Slaves to that cycle of sin and death and sin and death or sin and repent and sin and repent. It's Now there's this new course, this new power, this new lifestyle that is available. Not through us, but through the Holy Spirit. I read this week that D.L. Moody, who was a famous preacher from the 1800s, Powerful communicator. At the end of one of his sermons, uh, he had a glass, of wa- uh, an empty glass, and he held it up and he asked, how do I get the air out of this glass? There's a long pause, and finally somebody says, well, you could vacuum it out or suck it out. Well, you know, it would fill right back up. So you could cover it maybe and put a hose in there and suck it out. But then what would happen to the glass? It would collapse, right? And after a longer pause, he put it down. And then he took a pitcher of water and he filled the glass up. And where did the air go? It went out. And that's a silly illustration, but he used it. (laughs) And he went on to say this. The Christian life is not accomplished by trying to suck sin out of our lives or somehow push it out, but as we're filled with the Spirit of God, then something leaves, and it's that sin. It's, it's, it's that way of thinking. It just changes. It's the Holy Spirit. That's why as we stay on the mountaintop for the next Nine weeks, you're going to be seeing and hearing about the Spirit of God over and over and over again. Because that is the power we have now. So, I'm done. <laughs> How's that for a conclusion? I'm done. <laughs> well, we're going to move into com- communion. Here, here's what I'd love to have you do as we share Communion. And if you're new with us, let me just explain. Um, Musicians will come up and they'll sing some songs that you can just listen to and meditate on the words or sing along with and then when you're ready you can go grab a piece of bread and some juice and I always encourage you to partake with somebody. This is a family event. It's, It's what we do together. But as you do it today, just hold those elements and think about the fact. Because of the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus, I am no longer under the condemnation of God. That's the fact. Revel in that fact. As you're holding those elements, recognize, now I'm free. Because of what Jesus, I'm free to live life different than I ever have before. As you hold that piece of bread and that juice, recognize this wasn't accomplished by the law, it was accomplished by Jesus. The law fails. Jesus never does, amen? And then, as you're holding that, maybe just a prayer that you would, again, invite the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you for all that he desires for you. What, the things that he saved you for. He didn't just save you because he saved you for a purpose, ultimately for his glory, but that is lived out in all kinds of different ways in our lives, and, and ponder that as you hold the elements. And as you're spending that time in prayer, of course, Scripture reminds us to confess sin. If there's things that just need to be given up to him again, this is the time to do it. This will be the first time we share a communion together in 2024. It's a good way to start, amen, a good way to refocus on what Jesus Christ has done. So I'll pray the musicians will come, and we'll share together. Father God, again, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for what you did, period. Had you not done what you have done, we would stand condemned rightfully. And our present would be a mess. Our future would be worse. And eternity would be unbearable. So because of what you did, we stand free. Thank you. So as we share these elements, this bread and this juice again together. Make it big in our hearts and our minds. Lord, for many of my brothers and sisters, like myself, I've I've understood this. This has been real to me for years now, decades. But make it full and real once again, the significance of what you've done. And we'll give you the praise for it all because of Jesus.